as I like to do whenever there's a guest speaker, I like to introduce them, especially when I know them pretty well. Pastor Leno, you've been my friend for over 15 years. I'm not sure the exact time, but throughout the years, I've learned many, many things about the gospel. And you, I figure, were teaching me this through the Holy Spirit. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate your friendship to the point where I count you as a mentor of mine. I don't have many, but at least you are one of them. And I really enjoyed the way you would delegate to the elders what you would like them to do. And the way you asked us, and it was really teaching me about God, about God's love, and how I can share it with others. So I look forward to your sermon today, Pastor, and I know it's about the gospel. Thank you, Craig. I will have to say the gospel is everything to me. Jesus is everything. There is no substitute for the gospel. There certainly is no substitute for Jesus. And that is why Jesus asks us not to compromise with the gospel. In that famous passage that we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins in what I imagine at the time was a very shocking way of beginning his most famous sermon. Now, I don't actually think it was a sermon in the formal sense. More likely, it was some teachings that Jesus gave uh, throughout that day and throughout his ministry. And they were collected into a just three chapters in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, I suspect that on that particular day, uh, Jesus would teach something, and he started, we know he started with his disciples, and gradually the crowds gathered. Uh, and I suspect that Jesus told his disciples, you talked about delegating, Craig, I suspect that, uh, that Jesus would teach his disciples, and then perhaps the disciples would go out into the crowd and explain to people what Jesus was talking about. And so it was kind of like on-the-job training for uh, the disciples. Uh, I think that's how this passage of Scripture and many others uh, came to be, is because uh, Jesus would teach them, they would learn it, and they would practice it, and they would teach it to others. You know, you learn more when you 
teach others than uh, just by listening to somebody, don't you? So what is amazing to me about this Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus starts out in a most unusual way. Now, keep in mind that this is all about the kingdom. When Jesus begins his ministry, remember he, he was baptized by John. He uh, is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, and he's tempted. And then he comes back and he begins his ministry, and he says from, and it says, from then on, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, Jesus' gospel, good news, was all about the kingdom. And that's one of the things that we have to get used to when we read the teachings of Jesus, is that when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's teaching the gospel. So, for example, when we get down to Matthew 24, and Jesus is t telling the disciples about the signs of the end, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. The, the gospel, the way Jesus worded it, was the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what was the kingdom? Well, we get a description of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He's talking about people who don't have it all together. They're not the elite. They're not the experts in the law. They are not uh, in the priestly class. Uh, they're, they're poor. And they uh, don't have any status. But Jesus says, in the kingdom, you are blessed. And he goes on, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are oppressed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek, not the arrogant, the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. This was a totally different kind of kingdom than anybody was used to. This was good news to the poor. This was good news to those who were struggling. Those were, this was good news to those who were sick of the politics of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was good news to those who had no hope, who needed mercy. This was good news to those who just wanted peace. It was bad news, however, to those who had been building their own kingdoms. It was bad news for those who believed that a true patriot would rise up and revolt against the Romans and commit violence in the name of God. It was bad news to those who were gathering around them enough disciples so that they could become wealthy. 
uh, you know, in Luke 16, uh, we read there where the Pharisees loved money, which is why they were scornful towards Jesus, because Jesus put the kingdom of heaven above everything else. It says you can't have two masters. You've got to serve one or the other. And the love of money, <laughs> uh, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. So if you were a person of privilege, if you were a person of power, you did not like Jesus' message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, because the kingdom that Jesus talked about was completely different from the kingdoms of the world. And this gives us a clue, I think, as to what Jesus was talking about when we come to you are the salt of the earth. Now, let me see if I can get my little clicker here to work. Um, let's see. Okay. There we go. Um, after the Beatitudes, this is what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, this is right after the Beatitudes, where Jesus has introduced the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And he's basically saying, this kingdom is upside down. This is a completely different kingdom than what you're used to, because the poor are blessed, the meek are blessed, those who are oppressed and persecuted are blessed. It's not like the kingdoms of the world, where only the successful are blessed, where only the powerful are blessed. Only those who claw their way to the top and put others people uh, put other people down in order to get ahead. Those people are not blessed in the kingdom of heaven. They have their blessings in this world. So what is Jesus saying about salt? He's basically saying this that if you belong to the kingdom of heaven, don't compromise who you are. Now, we, you know, salt of the earth is a very familiar term, and we still use it today to describe people who are, are, are decent, hardworking, uh, you know, good values, and in their own quiet way, they may not be flashy, they may not be wealthy, they may not be powerful, but in their own quiet way, they bless people around them. They, just by being who they are, by living their own life, not trying to force their views on anybody else, just, just by being who they are, they make the world a better place. I think that's what Jesus meant by being salt. But more to the point, he said, the kingdom of heaven is the way of love, grace, 
and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is not a way to conquer the world. It is a way of redeeming the world. And if you compromise who you are, if you compromise the kind of kingdom that we belong to, the kingdom of heaven, then you don't really have a kingdom of heaven. You might probably have some other kind of kingdom. But if you compromise the principles of, of love and justice and mercy, if you compromise those principles to get ahead, you no longer have the kingdom of heaven. So just as salt that is not salty is not really salt, then a kingdom without love, mercy, and blessing the poor is not really the kingdom of heaven. But let's read on. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The heavenly kingdom is not in competition for the things of the world wealth, power, and status. Instead, it is like a light that benefits the world. The kingdom of heaven, also known as the kingdom of God, is a new way of being in the world. It is the way of love, grace, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is not a way to conquer the world. It is a way of redeeming the world. Now, Jesus knows there's a lot at stake here. Just as salt that is not salty is not salt, and light that is not that light is hidden cannot give light, so his kingdom cannot be compromised and still be the kingdom of heaven. He knows, however, that there are a seemingly endless variety of ways to compromise. Early in his career, Jesus faced many kinds of temptations to compromise his mission to establish the kingdom of heaven. And of course, the most spectacular uh, case was when he was led out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was tempted to compromise his mission, to seek some other kind of kingdom. That's why the devil finally said, look, if you'll give me all, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world if you'll give me worship. Uh, I think the devil was the ultimate narcissist in that because he thought it was all about him. If he could have worship, he would give everything else away. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jesus knew that there was no shortcut. He loved the world. That's why he came. But he knew that the kingdoms of the world are not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is totally different. Jesus faced another, probably a more subtle temptation to compromise his mission and actually compromise his message of the kingdom of heaven when he was 
the guest speaker in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, it may seem odd to say that he was a guest speaker in his hometown, but he spent his, most of his uh, ministry around at that time in Galilee and uh, centered in Capernaum. And so finally, he, he comes to Nazareth and everybody's excited because here's the hometown boy done good. So we find in Luke 4, verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Remember that. Everyone praised him. Everyone. Now, this, this is early in his ministry. And we know that Jesus faced a lot of opposition as he went along. But at this point, he is so popular. It, Luke doesn't even mention any criticism of him here. It's like he is the rock star of Galilee. And people are just falling all over themselves to get close to him. Everyone praised him. So what could possibly go wrong? And what's wrong with accepting a little praise now and then? Certainly Jesus deserved to be praised, don't you think? Well, there was nothing wrong at first. But what happens when praise becomes a temptation, a trap? a way to keep someone in their place, to get them to be something they're not. That was the temptation Jesus faced in Nazareth. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. What a grand homecoming this was. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. He had left home, been baptized, announced by John the Baptist, confronted the devil in the wilderness, and then he had become a famous teacher and healer. He was the favorite son of Nazareth, a small town boy who had made good. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. By the way, that anointed, that, that an anointed one was the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Does that sound like the Beatitudes at all? He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Reading this passage, 
from the beginning of Isaiah 61 was a nice touch, and it got everyone's attention. I imagine that the eyes of the congregation glistened with hope, expectation, and a little bit of national pride. Their hopes had long gone unfulfilled. As a nation, they were effectively still in exile, even while in their own country. When reading the scripture, Jesus focused specifically on a messianic promise, a promise that there would be signs that the Messiah had come, including good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, and healing of the sick. These were signs that Israel's exile was over and a new kingdom was near. Jesus had said, the kingdom of heaven has come near, and he had performed the very signs listed in Isaiah. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today! This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. What did everybody react? Well, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked, oh, what a wonderful moment. Jesus read the scripture for that day. And then, as the custom was, he sat down to deliver a teaching. By reading a messianic passage, he affirmed their prophetic heritage, pointed toward a bright future and they loved him for it. They were proud of him. They had watched this son of Joseph grow up, and now he was a success. He was a great rabbi. Now he was home. He was one of them. But suddenly, Jesus' comments took an unexpected turn. Jesus is apparently not feeling as good as we might expect. Maybe there's something about all the applause that, that makes him a little uncomfortable. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in hometown, in your hometown, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Oh, there's expectations that go along with all of this applause. The applause and the praise was not bad in and of itself, but Jesus detected in their approval a bit of 
you better know your place, Jesus. You're still one of us. We saw you grow up. You're ours. And and if you got famous somewhere else, then don't forget, you're still one of us. Um, but go ahead. You know, we'd like to see some of those miracles. You, you, can, you can honor us by doing all of those things that, you know, we've just heard rumors about. But remember, you're our hometown, hometown boy. You're Nazareth's favorite son. Now, we don't usually think of Jesus' experience at Nazareth as a temptation. We usually think of it as the time Nazareth rejected Jesus, and that's true. They do reject Jesus, but not at first. They love him at first. Only after Jesus reacts negatively to their applause do things start to go sideways. How can we make sense of this? Was there something wrong with accepting the approval and applause of Nazareth? Before answering that, let's read on. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Ouch. But you are being accepted in your hometown, they might have interjected. What's wrong with wanting your success to benefit Nazareth? What's wrong with applauding you as our favorite son? But Jesus just kept on making things worse. I assure you, Jesus said, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, cleansed only Naaman the Syrian. Now, why is Jesus bringing up the past? Some of the people must have muttered in their pews. I don't think synagogues had pews in those days, but anyway. Why, why talk about the past, Jesus? Why talk about that time when Israel was corrupt and a prophet had to work outside the country? Why talk about that now? Apparently, Jesus thinks there's good reason to understand the systemic corruption of the past. He must see the sins of the past as affecting the present. Nazareth, his hometown, needs a savior, not a favorite son they can control. Announcing the fulfillment of prophecy can be a very popular thing. Assuming that the prophecy being fulfilled benefits the right group. But when the inclusive principles of the new kingdom put your own group in a bad light and put outside groups in a good light, 
kind of like the story of the Good Samaritan did. The results can be controversial at best and violent at worst. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Okay, what just happened here? The temptation for Jesus on this occasion was to settle for applause and success instead of being true to his mission. There's nothing wrong with applause and success unless it gets in the way of the greater purpose. For those attending the synagogue that day, it was a great it was great for Jesus to love Nazareth and hopefully teach and heal people in his hometown. It was not acceptable, however, for Jesus to make no effort to fit in and go along with their expectations. They were happy for Jesus to be their own light. They were not so happy for him to be the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are simple statements with far-reaching implications. The obvious warning is don't stop being who you are or you will lose your identity and your reason for being. That's what Jesus faced at Nazareth. Salt that is not salty is not salt. Light that is hidden is, in effect, not light. And if the people of the kingdom stop being what makes them unique in the world, they can't benefit the world. So what is this uniqueness, this salt-like and light-giving character of people in the kingdom? What is it? The metaphors of salt and light teach us how the kingdom of heaven really works. It works differently than worldly politics, military force, or any institution, including religious ones, that use coercive methods. Those methods are perhaps unavoidable for human institutions, especially those that end up competing with each other, like nations that go to war against each other. But we should never identify a human institution as the kingdom of heaven. They are two totally different things. The kingdom of heaven changes us on the inside it is not forced control from the outside. That is what makes it spiritual. It wins by using the winsome power of love, compassion, 
humility, mercy, peace, sacrifice, and all of those things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, don't compromise the kingdom of heaven. Don't compromise the gospel. You can't build a kingdom of love with the methods of the world. You can't build a kingdom of love with the methods of hate. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let me have let me have prayer for you. Loving God, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the good news of the kingdom that Jesus brings. May we enter that kingdom now, even while we are in troubled times, in troubled places. May we have your peace, your love, your mercy as salt and as light to the world. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.